Hi, I'm Shashank Bhargav and you're listening to Three Things, the Indian Express news show. India has been struggling to deal with the second wave of COVID-19. Yesterday, it reported nearly 2,60,000 new cases and 1,761 deaths. This was the biggest single-day spike in deaths that India had ever seen. The health infrastructure of almost every state appears to be overstretched right now and places like Delhi, Maharashtra and Chhattisgarh are facing a severe shortage of beds and oxygen. Now this current wave, which is a lot bigger than the first one, has come as a surprise to many. Even some health experts didn't see it coming. This is because there was a period before this wave when there was a lull for a few months. Cases had been declining in December and in February many thought that the pandemic might soon die out in india but there were experts that had warned us about this wave who now say that we really should have seen this coming what is evident now is that several red flags were in fact ignored and many were fooled into thinking that this would all be over soon this is what a recent indian express series about the second wave highlights that zero surveys and early detection of the double mutant should have been a warning sign for us but it wasn't in this episode we first talked to amitabh sinha who has been extensively reporting on the corona virus numbers for the indian express about this report amitabh a lot of health experts were surprised by this second wave of covid-19 though on the other hand many point out that there were clear signs that this was coming right so you are right we were taken by surprise when the second wave hit us and that's a problem instead of being surprised we should have anticipated it and the uh, thing is when all this all the cases were going down for a prolonged period of time almost 5 months there was maybe a false sense of insecurity that came in a lot of people believed that somehow india had escaped and frankly i was one of those persons who believed that somehow i didn't know why but somehow india was just lucky and escaped the uh, worst impacts of the pandemic but all this while a lot of scientists that i was speaking to they would always insist that look this is not over and a second wave can come any time and uh, we must be prepared so never lower your down because this is not yet over but it's not just that scientists were saying it some of the data that was being produced that data should have raised red flags so in the series that you have been doing for the paper you point out that there were two signs that had raised these red flags one was zero surveys and the other was that scientists knew about the double mutant pretty early on So let's talk about the zero surveys first in what way did the zero surveys indicate that the second wave was coming So now zero surveys what it does is it measures the prevalence of the disease in the population right and the disease prevalence gives you an idea of how many people in the population has got infected and from there you can deduce whether we are reaching a community level immunity or not and the last nationwide zero survey was done in december which said that barely about 20% of the population probably would have got infected now what that meant is 80% of the people were still susceptible they were prone to getting infection so when the curve started to go down in september and it continued going down till the second week of february for almost like 5 months a continuous slide in the number of cases every day 
there wasn't a very good explanation why it was happening. In fact, we have written several stories saying a lot of people say that it's not very well understood. There was no reason and we didn't know why the numbers were going down because there was a lot of people they were that were had not been infected and therefore were susceptible. And so a natural course of epidemic means that the, the virus would be infecting others as well. So that should have raised flags. Now, what happened is, and it's mentioned in the series as well, is we were probably fooled by very prolonged sort of decline that happened in India. Now, if you look at other countries, the second wave did not take so much time to come. In most of the countries, for example, the lull was barely one month long or maybe one and a half months long and the next wave struck them. So if you look at the curve of the United States or or the countries in Europe, nobody had a five month long lull period. In fact, nobody would have even like two month long lull period. So maybe it's possible that we got fooled by a very prolonged lull. But if we had just gone by data as scientists were going, uh, as health experts were looking at, then it was very clear that at some point of time, and the timing could not have been predicted, the intensity of the second wave could not have been predicted. But what was very clear is that at some point of time, it's going to hit us back. So that data was very much available. And somehow we saw the data and everyone knew what that data meant. But that prolonged lull probably we allowed ourselves to get fooled by that lull. And apart from us getting fooled by that lull, you also write that there was other data, other zero surveys that we looked to instead to sort of confirm our biases. Could you talk about what those zero surveys were? Yes. So while your national level data was showing very low disease prevalence rate, not the rate, but the disease prevalence per se, you had some zero surveys in local areas, say, which were pointing at very high disease prevalence in very small pockets, limited areas of a town or a city. So you had such zero surveys from Pune, from Bombay, from Delhi, which showed that certain pockets in these cities had reached uh, disease prevalence rates of 50 or 60 percent. You know, I remember in Pune, one pocket actually way back in September itself had reported 60% disease prevalence. Now, we were talking about very, not even entire one city, we were talking about small pockets within the city. But somehow, those zero surveys, the results of those zero surveys were somehow misread or misinterpreted as being representative of the entire country. And a lot of times, those were taken as representative of the disease prevalence across the country, which wasn't very accurate thing to do. So your national zero survey was saying only 20%, but then we somehow, because of a bias or whatever, we tried to look at the brighter side and say, okay, Delhi has reached 40% or 50% in certain pockets of disease prevalence. So some amount of community level infection, community level immunity is getting kicked in. And because the numbers were continuously falling, that thought process got reinforced saying, look, this is the community level immunity that is working to our benefit. And the problem was that we did not have very extensive zero surveys, repeated zero surveys from all over the country. The zero surveys were few and far between. Now, if there were more zero surveys that were conducted, repeated zero surveys at the same places to see how the disease prevalence is growing, then maybe the counter evidence would have been too great to ignore. 
So do you think it would be fair to say that because we wanted the pandemic to end, we only looked at limited data and that to one that favored our hopes? Yeah, you're right. We were desperately looking for positive news. The numbers were going down. We tended to correlate it with the favorable data points that were available. And uh, we sort of almost, not exactly celebratory, but we were thankful saying somehow India seems to be escaping. And we were happy that India was escaping. And we tended to overlook the fact that something, it could strike us back after some time. And so one thing that you mentioned is that not a lot of zero surveys were done, right? Could you talk about which states were doing them and which weren't? I think a lot of them did. Some of them did officially, some of them at very local levels. See, the state governments were too hard-pressed at that point of time to actually do. Um, and there are huge capacity issues in the health and infrastructure in the states. So most of the zero surveys we, were being done by local institutions. So in uh, Mumbai, for example, the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research, you know, some researchers from the IFR were doing it. In Pune, for example, ICER and some other institutions had collaborated. They were doing a zero survey in Delhi, backed, of course, by the local city government, the local state governments. They were doing it. But a lot of states were underrepresented in the zero surveys. Zero surveys, scientists will tell you that it has to be done at regular intervals. It has to be fairly spread out. You need to follow up and see how the disease is progressing. Now, all that requires a lot of commitment in terms of manpower, in terms of efforts, in terms of money as well. And uh, we were battling the worst ever pandemic. We didn't know what to do. Our uh, public health infrastructure wasn't that good enough. We made amends, really ramped up a part of our infrastructure during that time, but of course, not for exercises like zero service. So some of the states did not have enough, you know, a place like Chhattisgarh, for example, or Bihar, for example, they would have zero service, but probably they somebody did carry out zero service there. But a comprehensive zero service and something that was followed up repeatedly that was not available in most of the states. And apart from telling us the extent to which a population has been infected by a virus, what other kinds of insights can we get from zero surveys? So you get a lot of things from zero surveys. Uh, you can get the age profile of people who are probably are more susceptible to the virus than other age groups. From the addresses of people, from the localities that they live in, you can also mark out the areas where the disease is more prevalent than the others. And then you can target your policy interventions accordingly. For the In the first phase, you know, last year, the first wave, it was very evident that in a city like Mumbai, for example, a majority of infections happened in the slums or in more densely packed areas, while the high rises or the apartment blocks, they were relatively less impacted. Now, the situation has changed in the second phase because a lot of people have already been impacted in those slums. A lot of people have been infected in the first phase. So the virus in the second wave is not spreading that fast in those colonies or those densely packed areas where it had spread very fast in the first time, right? So uh, once you do the zero surveys, you get a whole lot of information, a whole lot of data points, which act as inputs into different kinds of analysis. Okay, so one thing was that there was very limited zero surveys done and the ones that were done, we only focused on the ones that made us think that the second wave wasn't coming. But the other thing that indicated that there was going to be a second wave 
was that experts had detected this Indian origin double mutant strain called B1167. Um, and this was detected more than six months back. And this double mutation has been found in samples in Maharashtra and which experts say could be contributing to the second wave. What had happened when scientists came to know about it back then? So this particular mutant was discovered, the double mutant, which is uh, under a lot of discussion these days, was found first in October. Now, let's be clear on one thing. There are like hundreds of mutations that can get recorded if you do the genome sequences of the uh, virus, then hundreds of mutations are happening almost on a daily basis. Not all of them are significant mutations. You know, 80, 90% of the mutations can simply be ignored. But this particular one, which we actually erroneously call a double mutant because it doesn't only have two mutations, it has many more actually. It has at least 15 significant mutations, but these are the two most crucial ones. So it's called double mutant. So it was first discovered in October. And even first time when researchers had seen this double mutant, probably it, you know, some people would have found it very, very significant because they could make out that this is something that you need to watch out for. See, this is all looking at data and uh, make informed decisions based on what data is telling you, what the information you are getting by from the gene. So genetic profiling is, again, another way of getting information about the gene, the way it is behaving, the way it is spreading, what is the nature of the virus, though, how it is changing its behavior, how fast is it spreading? There are lots of things that you can get from the data gleaned from the genetic profile. And by genetic profiling, you essentially mean genome sequencing? Yeah, genome sequencing. Actually, they are very specific terms, but I'm using it interchangeably here. But yeah, what I mean is you are looking at gene sequences in the virus, the sequencing part, right? So, I mean, some scientists now say that the October discovery of this double mutant variant uh, should have raised uh, red flags. Maybe it did. Maybe some of the scientists did raise red flags, but that needed to be followed up by more comprehensive you know, gene profiling, genetic sequencing. More and more samples needed to be sequenced. But that was not happening at that point of time. You know, India had not been doing enough gene sequencing right from the start. You know, other countries, even a small country like Belgium or Denmark, for example, they, in the first six months of the epidemic, even smaller countries had done many more sequences than India did. India hardly did a few hundred uh, sequences. Others were doing 70,000, 80,000, 90,000 uh, sequences, and they were all depositing in a global depository, which was accessible to all scientists across the globe. And that's how people shared knowledge. People could study and analyze and track uh, which virus, which variant was spreading where. But from India, there were very few sequencing happening. And there, there are reasons why we will not be able to do it. And in October and between November and January, in fact, very little sequencing was happening in India. And again, there was lack of funds. Uh, there was not very clear directives on exactly what we were trying to achieve by these sequencing measures. There were some, uh, some amount of lack of foresight as well. The fact that the cases were declining, maybe some amount of disinterest in whether we need to go ahead with sequencing in a very aggressive manner or not. So we really did not follow up. Right. And genome sequencing is now talked about a lot. Could you talk about in what ways it can help during a pandemic? 
So there's a wealth of information that can be extracted if you know the gene sequencing. You can track the origins of a virus, where how has it traveled and reached your particular place. If you have found a particular variant of the virus in Maharashtra, for example, and if you have sequences from other places as well, and with timestamps at every place, then you actually can trace how the virus has traveled. So who particularly has brought the virus in Maharashtra? You can tell whether this particular mutation uh, or this particular variant has the capability to uh, not transmit at a faster rate, whether this particular variant has the capability to evade human response, uh, immune response. So there are lots of information that scientists can gather looking at uh, genetic profiles. Even people who are designing drugs and people who are designing vaccines, for example, they cannot do it until unless they know the genome sequencing. So there's a lot of very good information that you can glean from gene sequencing, which is very, very vital in controlling the uh, spread of the epidemic. Okay, so genome sequencing is not being done in India at a big scale, nowhere near, especially if we compare it to some other European countries. One of the reasons they say that is the case is because it is a costly affair. So could you give a sense of just how costly it is? Okay, so... Uh... Maybe it does not sound as an astronomical sum. It, it costs somewhere between uh, three to 5,000 rupees in India. Every sequencing effort would probably cost about three to 5,000. And maybe when they are, you're doing it in large amounts, uh, maybe you bring it down, uh, costs down to about 2,000 per sequencing. But we are looking at bulk sequencing. You know, the, the target in India that has been set is actually they have an objective of doing sequencing of at least 5% of the samples, 5% of the new cases that come up every day. Now, we are staring at what 2.5 lakh, 2.75 lakh cases every day. So we are talking in terms of sequencing 10,000 or 12,000 or 15,000 samples every day. So multiply it by 2,000 or 3,000 rupees. So it's a costly affair. It also is a time-consuming affair. It takes a lot of computing time. It takes a lot of computer resources. So it's not something that's an easy thing. It's not even diagnostic tests are uh, complicated. And this is much more complicated than that. Yeah. And in your piece, you mentioned that it can take three to five days to develop even a single sequence. And that is after the virus sample has been extracted, cultured and sent to a laboratory. But, you know, now India seems to have put in some efforts at least to increase genome sequencing. It was only in January it set up INSACOG, the Indian SARS-CoV-2 Genomics Consortium. Could you talk a bit about this consortium and its efforts? Yeah, so basically what all that it does is it brings, you know, about 10 top laboratories in the country. It brings them together, creates a network and makes them the nodal places where genome sequencing can happen. And then each of the state, each of these labs is assigned one or two of these states so that all the samples that are collected from that state and meant for genome sequencing can be sent to that lab, basically trying to ramp up the number of genome sequences that are happening. And that's what the target there is, which I was telling you earlier, the target is to do 5% of all new cases sequence 5% of the all new cases. And that's a very ambitious target. No, it's it's a very, very ambitious target. I don't think we will be able to achieve that right now. We are doing less than 1%, uh, in fact, closer to 0.5% every day. But even if we do that, there is a, we can get huge amounts of information that we were not getting earlier. And uh, we are slowly now getting there. I mean, we are doing more and more sequencing and we'll get more and more information from there. 
So whether it be zero surveys or genome sequencing or a lot of other things. So what we are looking at is basically data about this virus and how it spreads, you know, amongst whom does it spread? What are the conducive environments in, in which it spreads? So all this data can be utilized for us to remain ahead of the curve. So this is meant to keep us ahead of the curve. If we don't do it, then uh, we are behind the curve as we are right now. That's the thing. So now that India is trying to ramp up its efforts, what are the sort of latest concerns that genomic sequencing has flagged for us? Yeah, so they have already flagged a new mutation, which is of concern. So this double mutation, which, as I told you, is you know wrongly named because it doesn't have just two. It has at least 15 significant mutations. But these two are in the spike protein and of maximum concern. Now, this particular mutation, this particular variant of the virus is now developing a third mutation and at least three different varieties of a third significant mutation has been found, right? So, I mean, this particular third mutant or a triple mutant, as some of them are calling. So it's still not spread in the population. They have picked it up. But this is the sort of advance warning. If they actively look for this triple mutant and they start taking measures to see where it is spreading, how it is spreading, and then try to control and isolate uh, the people who have this, then this is the sort of advance warning that you expect to be coming from a genome sequencing exercise. So this issue has been flagged. I'm sure there are other things that have been flagged, but this is something that we knew of, that the double mutant variant is now mutating further into a triple mutant variant, which probably can make it even more potent. So, Amitabh, this is yet another example in which we are seeing that after a disaster, it has become clear that there were key signs and red flags, but they were ignored. If you were to take a step back and look at this thing, what is your takeaway from it? One can always make the argument that we could have done much better. And that's true. We could have done much better in terms of testing. We could have done much better in ramping up our hospitals. It's still not the best. We are still not very well equipped. You can always argue that we could have done, we should have done much better. But uh, yeah, in some areas, we did a lot of work. In some areas, we have been lacking terribly. And uh, some of that is hurting us very badly now. One can always be wiser in hindsight, as uh, this is the case. But uh, the thing is, it's always a mixed bag. So far in the episode, we have talked about how health experts missed key red flags about the second COVID-19 wave affecting India. But now we talk about how this wave is different from the previous one. On Monday... The government's key COVID task force, which includes Niti Aayog member Dr. V.K. Paul, the director of AIMS Randeep Guleria and ICMR chief Balram Bhargav, met and discussed just that. They talked about the data collected from the National Clinical Registry for COVID-19, which is a registry that captures data from several hospitals. This data only involves people who are hospitalized due to COVID-19. And so when this task force met, they compared how hospitalization in this wave compares to that of the last one. Conan Sheriff, who reports on health for the newspaper, joins us to talk about what they found out. And he starts by telling us what they found out about the oxygen requirement in patients. So the data shows that there is a higher percentage of patients who now require oxygen compared to the first wave. So, so in terms of absolute numbers, uh, the hospital data shows that 54.5% uh, 
admissions uh, during the second wave required the supplemental oxygen during the treatment this was significant 13.4 percentage point increase compared to the peak the first peak which was uh, in the month of september and november so it clearly indicates that we now see that so many states are now reporting huge uh, demand as well as shortage of oxygen there is a clear evidence now that uh, patients who are getting hospitalized a large percentage of them now require oxygen therapy and this is crucial because to ensure that a patient's symptoms don't go from moderate to severe oxygen therapy is a must in covid in the same aspect also we now see that in terms of the symptoms people who are symptomatic right now the top symptom is shortness of breath almost 48% of patients who have been hospitalized have come with this symptom but if you look at uh, other symptoms that were prominent in the last wave uh, like dry cough loss of smell fatigue sore throat so there is a actually decrease in these symptoms in fact dry cough less than 1.5% patients who are admitted in the hospital are showing the symptoms of dry cough 2% are showing just loss of smell last time we had almost 8% patients showing loss of smell and sore throat also the same thing last time we had almost 16 to 17% of patients were hospitalized were showing sore throat but this time it dropped to 7.5% so what it means is that most of the patients now who are getting hospitalized or who are symptomatic the majority of them are now showing shortness of breath as the symptom it is a big uh, change in terms of the clinical manifestation of the disease uh, in india which we are seeing in the second surge so just to recap shortness of breath is the number one symptom for those with symptomatic covid some of the symptoms we saw in the previous wave have reduced and those who are hospitalized this time overall require more oxygen than those hospitalized in the last wave Now the other thing that the task force pointed out was that the overall mortality in hospitals has not changed. Though one of the reasons why we are seeing more deaths this time, Conan explains, is because there are more cases now. But here we are not seeing more number of deaths because of the change in severity of the disease. We are cha- seeing the more number of deaths because people are having severe infection and then coming to hospitals. So but even when they are coming to hospitals there is the the time that they come they're not getting access to bed so the mortality in india is basically because of the unavailability of bed the example is chatisgarh for a population of its size the kind of death it's reporting is very high is only because it does not have very robust health infrastructure in terms of bed and especially the icu beds and oxygen beds you will also see then similar trends now in other parts of the country especially if you see what is happening in lucknow you know which is a big hotspot again lack of beds and more number of deaths happening the other thing to note here is that hospital data that we have for this wave is only for the first few weeks so these inferences could change later but for now it appears that more deaths are not happening because of the severity of the disease but because of our health infrastructure now besides patients requiring more oxygen and mortality rate in hospitals not changing that much The other observation was that more than 70% of covid patients in India that were admitted to hospitals were above the age of 40. So what this means is that the age above 45 still remains the most susceptible population or the most vulnerable population in the country. So they require these beds. They are the ones who require these beds. So the other thing we need to understand that we are hearing anecdotes that 
now this wave is causing more disease or more severity to youngsters but the hospital data is not reflecting that it's still the population above the age of 45 and have significant comorbidities and higher risk are still affected by this wave but what we see is that all our policies all our vaccination policies now has to be focused on this target group which continues to be the vulnerable group and uh, that largely the younger population is still asymptomatic and they continue to be the mass spreaders that they transmitting more of the disease we are seeing a very marginally higher proportion of younger people getting hospitalized that's the national data as of now you were listening to three things by the indian express today's show was written and produced by me shashank bhargav and was edited and mixed by suresh pawar if you like the show then do subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts you can also recommend the show to someone you think will like it share it with a friend or someone in your family it's the best way for people to get to know about us you can tweet us at express podcast and write to us at podcast@indianexpress.com at